Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just turned four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett. No Kevin today, but he tells me unless he drowns down at the beach... We'll be back next week. But today, a proposal for seabed mining in the Bismarck Sea. We're speaking with Natalie Lowry from the sea, the Deep Sea Mining Campaign. Part one of history in the present and future for New Caledonia, facing a referendum at the end of this year. My monthly talk with Dr Margie Beavis, who's the Secretary of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Robert Martin from the Palestine Remembered program speaks with Palestinian Bassam Tamimi. You remember his daughter was jailed or in jail at the moment for slapping an Israeli soldier late last year. Well, Bassam's been protecting his family and their land for many, many years. And Robert then speaks with me about his two months visit to Palestine in late last year, I think it was November, October, November. In many parts of the developing world, multinational corporations are seeking out new ways to extract the wealth with little value to clean down to the local people. PNG is no exception. For years, the people watched their forests disappear, mines turn mountains into great holes in the ground, rivers and livelihoods destroyed. And the latest challenge to their traditional life comes in the form of proposals for seafloor mining in the Bismarck Sea off the northeast coast of PNG, expected to be the world's first commercial high-grade seafloor copper gold mine project. But the project is far from secure, even though it has recently triumphed to the world the successful completion of the so-called submarine trial of its giant mining machine, which it says will cut and extract high-grade copper and gold from the seafloor at the Solara 1 joint venture project in the Bismarck Sea. But there's another story to that. I'm speaking now to Natalie Lowry from the Deep Sea Mining Campaign. And into this equation comes the BBC with David Shookman. Can you explain his look at the secret of the ocean floor? I followed David Shookman's work before because he was one of the, the only journalists out there who'd done sort of a long piece on deep sea mining. You know, he's the science editor, so it came from obviously a science perspective. I happened to be in Port Moresby last year, I think it was around September, August, September. He contacted me and said that he was going to be there in Port Moresby the following week to do a story. And I straight up said, well, who are you interviewing? Are you actually going to be talking to any of the community's front line? And, you know, he said, we've only got time to go to Port Moresby. So I negotiated with BBC that they bring Jonathan Messelin, one of the community leaders from New Island province, uh, his village is one of the villages closest to the Sawada One site, about 25 kilometres away. 
And so they brought him over to Port Moresby and I also facilitated him meeting with Roy Trivedi, who was at that point still the head of the UNDP in Papua New Guinea. So yeah, I guess I sort of facilitated some voices that were opposed to deep sea mining. David and his team obviously interviewed Nautilus and went to see the machines that were currently being tested just out of Port Moresby at the time. So just explain what he talked about, the secret of the ocean floor. Yeah, the the long piece he wrote actually was off the back of a BBC television piece uh, that happened in December, and you'll see in that long piece he he actually interviews Sir David Attenborough. So yeah, he actually approached the whole story of deep sea mining in a very interesting way. He took it right back to the 70s where they were looking at deep sea mining, but it actually all sort of was tied up with the CIA and yeah, it was almost like this sort of mystery story. But interestingly enough, it, it gave uh, a chance for that whole industry to be looked at and open up. But at, back in that time, you know, I guess technology and economics didn't add up for it to really take place then. And um, now technology has sort of caught up with us. That's why the industry is is being driven and, you know, been trying to open up, particularly in the Pacific, and the industry itself is really trying to push the line that we need to mine our seabed for green technologies, which, um, uh, and also because we're apparently losing um, access to gold and copper. We do have a lot lower-grade ores on land. So these are the arguments the industry are pushing. And within that long piece, he obviously gives the side of Jonathan Messelin, who is um, one of the representatives of the Alliance of Sawada Warriors, who are calling for a ban for seabed mining and are deeply opposed to Nautilus's project going ahead in their, their seas. So he shows some different sides. It's actually a, a very well-researched, very comprehensive piece on deep sea mining, so we're very grateful it's out there. It throws up a lot of questions and arguments and discussions to be had. And who is this industry that's promoting deep sea mining? Well, the industry is it's international. Um, I mean, P&G, it's a Canadian company, but there's no question that the drive to plunder and exploit our seabeds around the world, it, it is an international issue. In the international waters, um, it's actually been driven by governments. In the Korean Clipperton Zone, it's carved up, I think it's about 26 or 26 countries. One of the key companies in there, interestingly enough, is Lockheed Martin. And they've had their head in this industry for quite a while. But in terms of traditional mining companies, there's actually not many. And that's quite interesting in itself. So it seems to be more governments. So particularly, you know, the EU are driving it because they have less access to raw materials in their lands. <laughs> they mine themselves out. Um, so they see this as an opportunity for them. Um, China is obviously a very key player, but there's also other countries. And, and as I said, one of the key companies is Lockheed Martin, and there's also big kind of dredging companies like Dima, which is one of the biggest in the world. And bringing it back to Nautilus, even the investors in Nautilus, the only one that's actually um, a mining company is Anglo-American, and they have about a 4% um, share of Nautilus. We've been in discussion with them for the last year, talking to them why it's important for them to divest from this experiment and that there is you know, such a strong resistance and opposition in P&G and across the Pacific and growing internationally and that it will be best for their reputation to lead. Interestingly, they um, are continuing dialogue with us, so we see that as a positive. But the other investors are a little bit difficult for us to campaign around. 
the two companies involved. One is run by, one is headed by um, one of the wealthiest men in Russia, and the other one is headed by a billionaire in Omar. So they're, in a traditional sense, the finance campaign are not easy targets for us, obviously. So that makes it a little difficult, although we're focused around potential investors for Nautilus because they still have to raise about $350 million for them to be able to start operating, which they're proposing um, early 2019. What has the PNG government contributed? Um, they have a 15% stake. If you actually go back, so, you know, this, the Sawada 1 project, you know, it was supposed to be operating back in 2011. It's now 2018. So there's obviously been some hiccups on the way, in part finances, in part technology, and also we truly believe that the opposition to this has also... You know, not made it easy for the company to be able to find further investment. But back in 2012, there was actually a dispute between Papua New Guinea government and Nautilus, and that was around the PNG government not sort of paying up. Um, and that went, they went into arbitration for a good year and a half. And the Bank of South Pacific came in with a loan, so that could be resolved. So yes, the PNG government still have a 15% stake in this operation. However, you know, even within the opposition in PNG, people are very much questioning how this even get signed off in the first place. There's been no, you know, there isn't the science for, for us to really show what, how big the threats will be or how big the impacts will be, but we do know that there'll be impacts at all stages. And also there has been very little consultation. The company will talk about this extensive consultation, but, you know, as someone who's been on the ground and... Uh, East Britain and New Ireland, um, it's pretty clear a lot of the community totally disagree with that. And the idea of free prime informed consent, which is, you know, a right for Indigenous peoples, is that they should ha- have all the information, be able to make an informed decision, and that their consent is adhered to. And in this case, that hasn't been followed. What information were they given? From what we can gather, everything's going to be great, there'll be benefits, Here's a bridge, this bridge, which I went to in New Island province. Now, the west coast of New Island province is very isolated. The roads there aren't great. It takes a long time to get up and down. And there's a series of lots of beautiful little, it's a beautiful area, but lots of beautiful little creeks and streams that, you know, obviously there needs to be bridges to go over. And so Nautilus built a bridge. And look, you know, we give credit that Nautilus has done something. They've built this bridge, but it is highly over-engineered and decorated with cut-out dolphins and things, which, you know, makes you Christian. They spent 1.3 million kina, so um, like maybe $500,000. You could think it would be better spent somewhere else. Yeah, or maybe there could have been a couple of bridges. Maybe some of that road could have been sealed. They also, you know, have said that they have given medicine to some of the, I guess, medical units or areas up that coast. But one woman I spoke to who is a school teacher said, look, they need to speak to the community about what they want to give us because none of this really works. Really, all the medical stuff they gave should have gone to the Matanai Hospital because that's the main hospital. So I guess for the communities, the concern is you know, that's fine that you have tried to give something back to the community, but you never really asked us what we needed or where we needed it. And that's a common thing we hear about mining companies. So in, in, a, in some ways, they've built this bridge and done these other things to make it look great to the shareholders and to any future investors. The reality is there are no benefits for these local communities because the whole operation takes place out in the ocean. So there's no sort of, 
you know, where there's land-based mining, there may be businesses that sort of, you know, can can benefit from the mine, but well, that's not the case. And really, the main concern for these frontline communities, and this isn't just New Island province, because we know that, and others have stated that this year, that there won't be just one Sawara, there'll be several of them, because we believe that the one project, Sawara One, is not economically viable, that they will have to continue to open up. A month ago, thanks to our colleague at Transparency International and PNG, he sent me a little tiny news ad, which is probably in the corner of the paper on the back pages, for an application for a new exploration license from Nautilus Minerals. Obviously, we reacted to that very quickly, and over the last month, the Alliance of Sawada Warriors, been supported by a fantastic NGO there, Bismarck Ramu Group, have been mobilising across five provinces, so Medang, East New Britain, New Ireland, Manus and Milne Bay. These are communities that are very close to a lot of the tenements that are possible uh, exploration places in the Bismarck Sea because they have them right across the Bismarck Sea. And they've all joined together with objections. Um, in fact, yesterday, Jonathan Messelman, his colleague John Namori from New Island Province, joined with Jenny Jack from York Island. They're in Port Moresby and they handed over their objections to the Minerals Resources Authority in Port Moresby. So that's been a significant thing on the ground in PNG. Often these processes for these communities don't happen because they don't even see the notices in the first place. And certainly all this is actually being backed by the Lutheran Church, by the Catholic bishops, by Caritas, PNG Council of Churches, Pacific Council of Churches, and the Cardinal John Ribas himself. So this isn't just about the local communities on the ground, it's also the churches that are backing the voices of these communities who are defiantly saying, we're the custodians of the sea, we say no to this, we don't want this in our traditional fishing grounds, this, this is you know, a source of economy, as also we have a spiritual and cultural connection to our ocean. Has there been attempts to divide and rule? I think in the past, yes, and possibly that will continue, but... In, in my experience, once a campaign on the ground is very united, it becomes harder to divide. And I think that these communities are quite weary now of how the politics play out or how the company or certain politicians or people will try and divide them. Sometimes Facebook is a, a pretty big medium for people in uh, PNG to discuss these issues. So sometimes you'll see someone come in and throw a few questions in there, but quite quickly people will bring them down. And there seems to be a very overwhelming stance against seabed mining happening in PNG, or they say they call it experiment to seabed mining, and they have every right to do so because it is an experiment. Only uh, yesterday or the day before, there was a massive earthquake up in the highlands, and this is also another concern because there are always earthquakes going off in the Bismarck Sea. So people are very concerned about what would happen if there was an earthquake around an operating site, let alone the fact that there's all these unknown impacts that could take place that they'll have no control over. Unlike um, terrestrial mining, land-based mining, you know, we can actually see a mountain being cut open. We can't actually see what's happening in the deep sea, and there's no way that PNG has uh, any capacity to monitor or regulate such an operation. They've um, failed, unfortunately, around a lot of the land-based mines in PNG. So it's deeply concerning to see such an experimental and frontier extractive industry take place in the waters of Papua New Guinea. 
Despite all that, is the company saying that it, we, no, we believe that we won't destroy the environment even though it is an experiment? Oh, absolutely. I think even within the BBC article, Michael Lodge, who heads the International Seabed Authority, they give out the licenses in international waters, even there he, he was saying, well, this is you know, so much safer and environmentally friendly than land-based mining. We actually believe that's a very dangerous thing for him to say. There's absolutely no proof of that at all. And as one of our colleagues, Professor Richard Steiner, um, who's a very recognised conservation biologist, says that to use land-based mines as a benchmark is like comparing apples and oranges. And, you know, we can look at the environmental impacts of oil and gas and we can see that recovery of marine ecosystems is not very inspiring. And we know very little about the ecosystems of hydrothermal vents. These are very unique ecosystems. And as, you know, Sir David Attenborough said, you know, this is where life began. And in his appearance in the BBC News piece that David Shookman did, he got absolutely devastated. So David Shookman showed him the machines that have been tested, in that were tested in P&G. Yeah, he was absolutely devastated and said this really should not take place. And in terms of those machines that were uh, tested in Modicare Island, which is just out of Port Moresby, that's also really of, of great concern because they tested them not in the conditions of 1,500 metres deep, <laughs> which is where they will be operating around the hydrogen events um, that they're supposed to destroy. They actually tested them in ponds in the humidity of Port Moresby, <laughs> not in extreme conditions of pressure, cold and darkness, which would be the experience that would get to the 1,500 metres. So that's also deeply concerning because Nautilus has only recently put out a media release saying, oh, they've been tested, they're great, they work. And now, from our understanding, they've actually gone to China to be placed on the shipping vessel to eventually come back to start operating. Were there witnesses to this so-called experiment to prove that it, that it wasn't the proper experiment? Uh, Yes, there was someone that managed to get in and take photos. You know, Modipia Islands and Industrial State, so it is actually very secure, but there was someone in Papua New Guinea that was able to go in and get photos of these ponds. But actually, you only have to look at the BBC News article <laughs> to see how they've been tested. So that was put on the BBC News TV. So, you know, it's not a secret. It's now kind of you can just go and access that news piece and actually see the conditions that they were tested in. And they clearly do not represent what the well, fifteen hundred metres deep into the Bismarck Sea. Has legal action been started yet against this? Um, so there was a, there is a legal case that was filed in December. Um, we're still waiting for the first sort of hearings, I guess, which I think will be in the next couple of months, hopefully. And so that um, legal case plaintiffs and that are um, from their part of the United Solar Warriors and it's the New Island province is Britain central province sort of which incorporates I guess the capital and also Medang. And that case is um, under section fifty one of PNG Constitution which is access to information. Part of the problem of this project is there's a lot of key documents that have not been made public, which should be, including the environmental management plan. So this case obviously is trying to get access to those documents. And then I guess from there, there'll be a chance to get experts to look at those documents to sort of see if there are ways to actually shut this project down. Is this project, in a sense, a test case for what could happen 
in neighbouring countries. Is that what you're saying in the Pacific? Yeah, so there's no operating deep sea mine anywhere in the world. This is the one that everyone is watching. It's the first um, project to be given a green light anywhere in the world. And absolutely, I think not only other Pacific countries watching to see what will happen, but obviously the industry itself. And we're deeply concerned that if this project goes ahead, it's just going to open up the doors to this industry throughout the Pacific. There's currently close to 1.5 million square kilometres of the Pacific Ocean under exploration leasehold. And of course there are different types of deep sea mining being proposed. This is around hydrothermal vents. There's also coal crusts which form on sea mounts, which you know are I think up to 2,000 metres deep. And then also there's the manganese nodules and that's around the Clarion Clifton Zone which is in the national waters that I've spoken about before between Hawaii and the Baja coast of Mexico. They're relatively very deep, actually. They're up to 6,000 metres deep. Each of those types of mining will probably have slightly different technology as well, but I guess they will look at how Nautilus, if Nautilus is able to actually start operations, and of course the campaign is very strong now in PNG, and um, it's getting a lot of support regionally and internationally um, to make sure that this project, the Sawada 1 project, doesn't get started at all. Are there many well-known environmentalists apart from David Shookman and David Altenborough who are actually getting involved in this campaign? Sylvia Earle has spoken strongly against this. She's written about it. She calls it the invisible land grab, which I think is a really neat term for what this is about. And then there are actually scientists who uh, maybe don't have the profile of someone like Sir David Attenborough, but um, in their own right academically. Who um, uh, And this has been really happening over the last year. There's been a lot more studies looking at what the impacts would be, particularly around... So the idea of this project is that they will pretty much scrape the floor. So what you're going to end up with is this sort of plumage or cloud. So there's a lot of concern about what that cloud will do, how big it will be, the toxicity of that cloud, because around the hydrothermal vents, of course, it's not just the gold and copper and whatever other minerals. There will be arsenic and other heavy metals that will be disturbed. Those are the concerns, is that cloud could easily move into um, the food chain, moving all the way up um, and impacting not only the marine life, but also the coastal communities that live off the ocean. So, yes, there is um, a, a range of scientists. Also, Professor Richard Stana, who is very recognised for his work around the Valdez spill. We believe there needs to be more voices out there, particularly in the science realm, really calling for a halt to this industry. Uh, interestingly, uh, new, one of the new bits news that's come out is the EU Parliament has called for a moratorium on seabed mining. Now, they sort of, it's really focused around international waters, but that in itself is, um, is really great, more broadly for the campaign, and our EU colleagues are obviously um, going to be able to work with that to actually take that to the EU Commission. Because even though the EU Parliament has come out, it's not legally binding, and obviously they need to campaigning and lobbying and pushing to how far that moratorium can go. What sort of support are you looking for at the moment? I guess with the deep sea mining campaign, our focus is, is to continue supporting in whatever way we can the communities on the ground, particularly in Papua New Guinea, and working with our fantastic partner organisation, Bismarck Homo Group. We, we're also doing um, a bit of research into China in the Pacific and their sort of engagement in this industry. Um, there's not been any research around that. And we continue to focus around sort of finance campaigning, so working with organisations like Bank Track in Europe and other, maybe our other EU partners, 
of identifying who are potential investors in this industry, particularly for Nautilus, approaching them and discussing with them the major concerns we have and also letting them understand that there is a very strong campaign on the ground that are pretty adamant about stopping this industry in its tracks. Well, they've certainly succeeded for the last few years, haven't they? Because this was supposed to go ahead way before this. And when yeah, you talk about yeah. this, no, really, there's no really point where it's going to start, now, even now. No, no, that's right. I mean, they're really pushing for the beginning next year. So this is very important, particularly around Nautilus Minerals. And believe me, the, you know, the struggle's not over one step forward, ten steps back often doing this sort of work. But in terms of a broader campaign, it's very, very strong. You know, we have a very strong legal campaign. We have the on-the-ground campaign, which to me is absolutely crucial and where it will most likely need to be won. There's lobbying happening around the PNG government and the opposition in particular. We also have uh, regionally, you know, the churches have come out, there's groups across the Pacific. We'd like to strengthen the regional campaign. I've recently been in New Zealand and met with Kiwis against Seabed Mining and to discuss with them how we can work better together, even though their form of seabed mining is slightly different. Um, it is also experimental and we can see that a lot of the impacts are going to be the same. And keep strengthening the international kind of campaign and building awareness because it's still such a new industry. There's still a lot of people that have no idea that this is being talked about even, let alone in the process of possibly happening. If people want to know more about this issue and the campaign, the Deep Sea Mining campaign, they can go to our website, deepseaminingoutofourdebt.org. It's a pretty good way to describe what's happening, isn't it? Deep sea mining out of our depths, that's where to look. If you want to find out more, that was Natalie Lowry speaking about the long-running campaign to stop it before it begins. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. Next, our monthly segment with the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. And on the phone is the Secretary, Dr. Margie Beavis. Margie, the news that I'm sure made you feel proud to call yourself Australian was that Australia is set to become one of the world's top 10 defence exporters under an ambitious 3.8 billion government plan to be on par with Britain, France, Germany within 10 years. Jobs, jobs and more jobs. But I rather think that a great deal of that money will be spent buying weapons of all sorts from the US and we will be buying from companies such as Raytheon, who at this moment are slaughtering people in Yemen, and also a boost to our troubled defence manufacturing industries, using taxpayers' money from the Australian Export Credit Agency. One person called it a shady and secretive way to spend taxpayers' money. What are your thoughts? There's a whole lot of issues. You're quite right in that the US are a major weapons the major weapons exporter, the biggest in the world. Probably a lot of money will go to the US. It also shows complete ignorance of some really good research 
done in the US showing that if you're going to put money into jobs, if you put that same amount of money into either health or education or renewables, you'll get many more jobs than you will if you put into defence or weapons industries, weapons manufacture. So it's a pretty spurious claim. And the third, and it, it, it ties in with the massive expansion in the defence budget, which um, Australia is currently doing. We're, we're ramping up our defence budget to 2% of GDP. You know, every other sector of the economy has been cut back, but defence has been spending a lot and continues to increase how much it's spending. I think it's about 6% a year. And not to forget that that's what we've, we've been told to do by the US. Yes, by the US, exactly. We're doing this because the US asked us to. And the, and the third issue that this whole thing raises is transparency in our political process. I mean, how much money are the weapons companies donating to foundations like the Cormac Foundation, which are foundations where companies can give as much money as they like and it's never traced through the electoral reporting system. So I think it, it not only is spurious because it's not enough jobs, it also makes me want even more for an effective federal donation reporting scheme and also for an effective federal ICAC so that internet, uh, a commission against corruption because I think there is a considerable amount of undue influence showing in this decision. And there's even more reasons too, if you've pointed out in your letter to the Minister, the strategic dilemmas of militarising Australia's exports. Yes, exports to Saudi Arabia should be a national disgrace, where in fact Christopher Pine boasts about them, but he only boasts about the fact that there are four contracts. He will not reveal what these contracts are selling. I mean, the Saudis are renowned for having very poor human rights record and are accused of war crimes in Yemen. And it just, you know, we, we couldn't afford to subsidise the car industry, but now we actually have a minister for the weapons manufacturing industry, and that's very disturbing and a real distortion of the priorities of what most Australians, I think, would want and what think would think is a good thing. And also many people are concerned about the, the impact of this on our neighbours in, in Asia and the Pacific if we're going Absolutely. to keep on spending money on weapons. Two aspects to that. The two aspects are... Are we going to spark a regional arms race because we're massively ramping up our spending on weaponry? And the second one is you only have to look at Papua New Guinea, which used to be a very peaceful, well, not, I mean, there were conflicts, but certainly not weaponized. But now there are so many guns in Papua New Guinea, it's one of the least safe places in the whole world. And exporting more weapons, certainly into the Pacific, would be a terrible thing because I think um, gun control has been shown to be effective and we are doing the exact counter to that in that we're manufacturing and selling. So I, I think it's really verging on culpable. If, if we, I think it was Tim Cotcello who said we were profiting from war and exporting bloodshed. And that's exactly what we're planning to do. And this was a government that was going to decrease the, the budget deficit, but, you know, spending this much money on armaments, but then I suppose they countered that by saying, well, we'll cut social services to make up the difference. Yes, yes. When they did the massive cutbacks also, as well as social services, when they did the massive cutbacks to foreign aid yes. in 2014, Joe Hockey said we are going to use these cuts in foreign aid to subsidise Australia's defence. And that's just appalling given that, that foreign aid did such wonderful things. I mean, UNICEF said that there was a, a community in Africa of 750,000 people who, because of Australia's aid, had water and sanitation and their children had vaccinations. And I just think for us to take that, turn it into buying weapons, especially in the context of the latest defence white paper saying that Australia had only a remote 
very remote likelihood of being attacked in the foreseeable future. So, as you said, we're building up our weapons at the request of the United States, and that 2% of the budget would be much better spent on health and education and really better social services for Australia. And while the government worked to increase the amount of weapons in the world, organisations such as ICANN, the group set up here in Melbourne many years ago, are focusing on ridding the world of weapons, particularly nuclear weapons. Where have they got to now by signing up the countries to, or getting them to ratify the arms um, deal? There are... We need 50 countries to sign the treaty and then to ratify it, so ratification being it going through their parliaments. Going through parliaments can take very little amount of time. We've got about, um, I think we have five countries now that have ratified, which is really pretty quick given that it only opened for signatory in September. We figure it will take two to three years to get it through, to get the 50 ratifications we need for this to become international law. So we're, we're encouraged. What's exciting here in Australia is that we're getting really good support from the Labor Party in terms of two-thirds of MPs, federal MPs, have signed a pledge from ICANN saying that they support signing the treaty. And um, Jed Carney, the member contesting Batman, it means in Batman both the Greens and the Labor Party are both strongly on board with signing this treaty, which is encouraging. So we are working hard locally to, to make sure that Australia is, is able to, in the future, at some future government point, sign this treaty. And as I said, I think it'll take a few years to get all the signatories, but once they're done, then it becomes international law. And then the real, the next sort of two decades of work where these weapons are so clearly illegal that people will not invest in them, that manufacturers will be shamed not to manufacture them, that countries and military will also think much more closely about whether they use them or not and for all that the Americans have been very dismissive of this ban, in fact they sent a secret letter to the NATO countries last year saying that this ban treaty would make a big difference to the deployment of nuclear weapons and that the NATO countries must not sign the treaty and must not go to the treaty negotiations because the Americans are so fearful of the impact of this treaty. So we're, when, when the Americans send a snaky letter like that we're quite encouraged. That timeline you're talking about, is that dissimilar to what's happened with other treaties such as cluster bombs and ones like that? It takes um, that long? I don't know. I don't know. I, I would imagine so just because every country has different processes for ratification. So but I, I don't know. I don't know how long they, they took for their ratifications and to get, to get it through. Well, while on nuclear issues, we've got the, the ongoing quest for a, a nuclear waste dump in Australia and Bawarana yep. is now in yeah. the highlights. Yes. Why there? Well, Barona is about, I think, I'm told, eight hours by car, sort of northwest of Sydney. So it's pretty remote in Australian terms. I'm sure the Aboriginal people there don't think it's a Absolutely remote place. Absolutely not. They're incredibly distressed and very active and have been very proactive. In fact, they had surveys to say whether people would support this. What was really most sort of interesting and depressing was that there was a presentation given to the Barona Shire Council just before Christmas. And it trotted out all the same incorrect information that has been given in the Flinders Ranges and in Kimber, almost exactly word for word, sort of saying this is this is sort of just low-level dump and it's all because of nuclear medicine and just the same old, same old. I mean, ANSTO must be very consistently telling this to people so that they believe it because the wrong information means that the communities have no actual factual basis. Nobody really talks about the highly radioactive, very long-lived, intermediate-level waste that has to be 
kept out of the water supply for 10,000 years, but the communities aren't told that. So what's interesting in Barorina is that they don't actually have a nomination yet. My understanding is that no one's nominated, that the council was just approached, I don't know by whom, but to say this was a good money-making exercise for the community. And I think perhaps when they've got communities that are, that are struggling, the government sees these as, as areas where they might take the $10 million money to, to put this dump in their land. But what was exciting was that on, on Friday, the local community, and particularly the Indigenous community, held a silent vigil outside the council meeting. And the council quite sensibly, I think, got wind of the fact that the information they were given in December may not be correct. So in fact the council have deferred any decision they haven't voted in favour, which is very encouraging. It means that that nomination hasn't really taken off yet and hopefully if we can get correct and accurate information into the community, the council members will see what a folly it is. Ironically, MAPW actually supports the establishment of a nuclear waste facility, but it has to be done in, in using world best practice standards and world best practice standards means firstly that you consult the community accurately so they know what's happening and secondly you actually have disposal for this radioactive waste i mean at the moment they're, they're making all this waste and proposing to make a lot more but they don't have any plan for disposal the, the proposal that's being sold to flinders rangers and to kimber and to Bawarana is 100 year storage and 100 years storage for something that lasts 10,000 years is basically just sort of kicking a very highly radioactive toxic can down the road. It's not really um, dealing with the waste at all. And what are the reasons why MAPWA would support such a dump if it was in the right place and done properly? Well, I think what we, what we really support at this point is actually an inquiry into manufacture and management of nuclear waste because at the moment ANSTO, the nuclear scientific technology organisation in Sydney where the reactor is are proposing to get multiples that they want to set up an export business and by exporting nuclear medicine we will end up with a, a very much more massively more intermediate level waste and ANSO says oh there's a world shortage well if you look at the actual expert information there isn't a world shortage ANSO says this will make money well if you look at the reports from the Nuclear Energy Agency they say that when you sell so if you, if you actually genuinely factor in all the money that goes into making these, so the government subsidies to build the reactor, the government subsidies to build the processing plant, the government subsidies for insurance, the government subsidies for storing the waste, the decommissioning, all those things, if you actually put them into the cost equation, you only get back about 10% of your money. So not only is this proposal to export nuclear waste stupid because it loses money, it's extremely stupid because it will leave us with a whole lot of intermediate level waste we don't have a way of disposing of now and if there's one principle that comes through loud and clear from toxic waste management the first principle of toxic waste management is to stop producing the stuff well the people at Anstow haven't heard that message and, and it really is incredibly short-sighted that we're planning to massively ramp up the production of this highly radioactive very long-lived intermediate level waste when we don't even have a place to put it and we don't have to a way of disposing of it. So that's the long answer. The, the shorter answer as to why we support the dump is because we do think having highly radioactive materials that are not properly stored is, is a major issue and it is useful to have a place that they can be properly stored and then disposed of. But I think it has to be done in a way that, as I said, is consistent with Bell's best practice and that includes having a community that is genuinely informed about what they are actually taking on if they decide to take on this, this waste facility. 
Yeah, I think what's pretty clear about all these places that they choose or they, 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 they target is the total disregard for the Aboriginal communities whose land it is. Over and over and over again. It's been happening for what I think is about 25 years. We've been going from Aboriginal land to Aboriginal land and it's... Um, Divide and rule. Yes. In Kimber there is not such a strong Aboriginal population, but even so, I think the process... They, they don't understand if they keep doing the same flawed process, they'll keep getting community resistance. They keep sort of really not telling the truth to the people that they're trying to take this waste. It's no surprise people will say, you know, no, go away. It's, it's what you're doing is wrong. And I think until we actually have an inquiry into why Australia, Australia's nuclear waste production, where it's coming from, what we've got, and actually honestly confront that, I think we're just going to keep going around in circles. And of course the importance of having groups such as yours who can put that other side because if people are bombarded with information by groups like ANSTO and government they, they haven't got a reference point to know whether it's right or wrong. Yes, I think, I think ANSTO, at, at a presentation at Kimber last year, myself and I'm a GP and I do prescribe nuclear medicine tests sometimes, not very often but sometimes when they're needed and Dr Peter Karamoskis, they've said that both of us were opposed to nuclear medicine. Now, that's just... It's ridiculous because Peter Karamoskis is a nuclear medicine physician. His whole day is with nuclear medicine tests. It's like saying an Olympic swimmer doesn't like swimming. Sorry. The, the government and their representatives are not telling the truth in many cases, and I think that really needs to be addressed. The Middle East, the carnage continues. Oh, Syria. I mean, Yemen as well, but... Syria is, the, hopefully this United Nations ceasefire will take hold, but I've, I've been looking around the internet and I've seen no reports of it actually taking, I've, 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 this morning I've done a little quick scoot around it, and it, it's so depressing, but usually hospitals are supposed to be protected areas, I mean people are starving, there's no food, um, I just hope this United Nations ceasefire holds, because the resolution has passed fortunately, unanimously but previous ceasefires have not taken hold and I'm just hoping that this one will because what's happening in, in Ghouta is, is appalling. But no one seems to be worrying too much about the people of Yemen. No, who, who yes, are starving, have cholera. I mean, I think it's now up to almost a million cases of cholera. The Saudis are big in Yemen and we're helping them with providing weapons, so Australia needs to look at, take a long, hard look at who we're selling uh, weapons too, but yes, I think Yemen, Syria, all of the Middle East, the more that the diplomats can get involved and the less that we can get involved in terms of selling weapons, the better. Well, Margie, just to finish, I'm sure you're being greatly enthused by the meeting in America by our beloved Prime Minister and the beloved President of the United States. <laughs> They're now great mates. Such a relief, such a relief. Yes, it is appalling that we are joined at the hip with the Americans. It's really... Well, they're, they're ramping up the number of troops that are going to Darwin. We are so enmeshed in the US command in the Pacific. I think one, and it's an Australian general that's number two in the US Pacific Command, and we've got very senior people littered throughout the US Pacific Command. We've got Pine Gap. We've got so many 
buy stations and really Australia has effectively outsourced its foreign policy. If America says we're going to war, we're going to war and I think that's that's a terrible shame. I mean New Zealand New Zealand manages to be an ally to actually have a foreign policy with Australia in terms of conflict, has completely outsourced its foreign policy. You wonder actually what they think of Australia because we, we just don't even know how to stand on our own two feet for five seconds. No, incredibly. Alan Gingell, the ex-head of the Office of National Assessment, the chief spy agency, has written quite a good book called Fear of Abandonment, and I think the title sums it up. We're still in the incredible cultural cringe that we can't actually stand on our own two feet. And just a little promo for MAPW. We've got a dinner happening on the 13th of March. People would like to come and hear the talk about the costs of US militarism. If people are interested in that, they can um, contact MAPW, which is www.mapw.org.au, or contact our executive officer, which is eo at mapw.org.au. And the speaker is? Me. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be talking about it. It's just there is so much that... Australia could be doing with what we're spending and instead we're so closely tied to the military in the US we really need to reflect on that some more. And that's at the Courthouse Hotel that's in North Melbourne. That's at the Courthouse Melbourne. Hotel in North Melbourne. If people are also, there's a phone number they can call which is 9023-1958. So that's 9023-1958 if people are interested in coming to that dinner on the 13th of March at the Courthouse Hotel in North Melbourne. Thanks Margie. Okay, thanks a lot Jan. And that is Margie, Dr. Margie Beavis, the now Secretary of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, and it's quarter to five on 3CR. You could be listening 8.55 on your old analogue. You could be digital, 3cr.org.au, listening, streaming for a week, or podcasting, 3cr.org.au. It shows you all about it, or, or on digital, 3CR. Coming up very soon, we'll be hearing from New Caledonia. Join the Palm Sunday Walk for Justice and add your voice to the call for change to refugee policy. Demand Australia's political leaders to abandon the current harsh and unjust policies and provide permanent protection for refugees. Stand with people from all over Melbourne demand the evacuation of Manus and Nauru and end the cruelty. Meet at the State Library of Victoria on the 25th of March at 1.30pm. Palm Sunday Walk for Justice is a 3CR supporter. Next on Tuesday Home Time, we turn to one of our closest neighbours in the Pacific and that's New Caledonia. And we're going to have part one of the history and present and future of New Caledonia with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. The islands were first settled, or as far as we know, by the Lapita people, an early Melanesian people. There's Lapita pottery spread across the Western Pacific, people originally arriving from Taiwan, coming to um, Papua New Guinea, Obviously Aboriginal people arriving earlier in Australia and then uh, Australia and New Guinea being divided by the the Torres Strait. But uh, the Lapita people spread across the islands and it's worth remembering that Melanesians developed blue water canoe travel before the Greeks did. The Melanesians had settled outer islands 
well before the Greeks got off the mainland to settle the islands uh, to the south towards Crete and so on. And there's a long history of settlement uh, in Papua New Guinea. There are irrigation relics, um, irrigation taro fields and so on up in, the, up in the highlands that go back thousands of years. And the Lapita people left pottery, which is um, the famous Lapita pottery is spread as far as Fiji. And so across the islands we today call Melanesia, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, Papua New Guinea, New Caledonia, that uh, population spread. Later, of course, there were others travelling further afield to Polynesia and north to Micronesia, but the earliest settlement was in our part of the world. And the Kanak people were, in fact, not really a people at the beginning. The Melanesian populations were quite diverse. Like a lot of Melanesian countries, there are a number of different language groups. You know, Papua New Guinea's got 860-odd languages, uh, New Caledonia at least 11, and there are also some Polynesian influences. The island of Uvea, which is in the uh, outlying loyalty islands of New Caledonia, were settled by people from Polynesia. So one of the things that's often forgotten is that there are a lot of interconnections across the ocean um, in the pre-colonial period, and uh, people traded very widely, and uh, so people from New Caledonia traded uh, with other parts of Melanesia and uh, set off on great canoe voyages across the Pacific um, that eventually colonised really many of the land areas uh, right across uh, towards the eastern Pacific. Must have been a great shock many years later when the, the whites came from Europe. Yeah, and like uh, other parts of the, the region, there was a, a mixture of church, state and business that arrived. The uh, evangelical movement across the Pacific uh, with both Protestant and Catholic Church and uh, the French state, like the British state, looking for a suitable place to set up a prison. And indeed, the, the history of New Caledonia is very similar to the history of Australia. Um, it was first annexed by France in 1853 for a prison. Just outside Noumea, the capital, which is in the south of the main island, they established a, a penitentiary, a separate uh, women's prison at Nouville from the male prison. And, uh, you know, the, the whole process began very similar to Australia. First uh, as a prison colony, then later as a land of free settlement. By the end of the 19th century, France was encouraging uh, free settlers to come to take up land, and uh, so most of the west coast of the main island, Grand Terre, was taken up by settlement, very similar to what happened in Queensland, and with similar race relations, with uh, uh, massacres and conflict between uh, the indigenous landowners and um, the, the new settlers. And indeed, um, part of the change came you know, with the changes in empire, one of the biggest growths of population came after 1871. People who remember their French history, as most don't, 1871 was famously the year of the Paris Commune. Karl Marx wrote about this in his, uh, his famous history and talked about uh, the massive uprising in Paris um, against uh, Napoleon III and against uh, the Empire. It was the first people's commune. It was uh, the great stirring of socialism at that time and was viciously repressed by the um, Versailles troops. 30,000 people were shot after the, uh, the repression of the Paris Commune in 1871. It only lasted for a very brief period, but created enormous social movement within Paris of working people. After the, the repression, a number of the leading agitators were arrested and were tried. Many were shot by uh, military tribunals but others were exiled, and, of course, they exiled them to the other side of the world. And so many communards, as they were known, were deported to uh, New Caledonia. 
given seven 14-year sentences and uh, with the idea, don't come back. Similarly, the same year in North Africa, once again, uh, French colonies in Algeria, and it was today Algeria, Morocco and so on, there were revolts against French rule. And in the Kabyle areas, the mountains in Algeria, there was uh, massive resistance to French colonisation, once again, protecting land uh, and, and uh, the mountain valleys, which had some water, unlike the desert. And French troops uh, put down the revolt, the Kabyle revolt of 1871. And once again, many Kabyle leaders were exiled to New Caledonia, a massive change from the deserts of Algeria to the islands of the South Pacific. Um, but it's one of the legacies of colonialism. And there are still today descendants of that Kabyle population, the famous uh, archaeologist Christoph Sand, a wonderful, wonderful fellow from New Caledonia, comes from that uh, Kabyle heritage uh, that's lasted through for many generations. The name Sand is a bit of a hint about uh, that connection. Did they send any of those leaders to other islands as well, or just New Caledonia? No, some were sent to Guiana, uh, French Guiana, um, in uh, South America. Uh, Devil's Island, famously, is the, uh, uh, the place... Uh, uh, where uh, many French exiles were sent. But New Caledonia was literally on the other side of the world from France. It was seen as a, a place of exile, just as Australia was from Great Britain. And so you had uh, an interesting situation. And that came at a time where Canucks began fighting back against the loss of their land. And in the 1870s, you had a, a, an anomalous situation where the communards, having risen up, were quite hostile to the Canucks because in 1878 led by Chief Atai, uh, one of the uh, customary chiefs of the, the clans in New Caledonia, uh, they launched a war against French settlement in the Mayan island of, of Grand Terre. Famously, um, uh, Atai had tried to protect his land against the cattle settlement that was coming in. Interesting point of history, there was an El Nino drought in 1877, right across the southern hemisphere. In Australia, a massive drought. In Melanesia, major problems with water. In Latin America, too, um, 20 million people died in 1877-1878 because of the drought across the Southern Hemisphere from Brazil, Latin America, through the Pacific, Australia. It was a, a terrible time. And, of course, the settlers wanted to push their cattle from the lowlands up into the mountain valleys where there was better water supplies. But the Canucks, having already been pushed off their land up into the hills, resisted that push up into the hills um, from uh, the cattle settlers and Atai famously uh, talked to some of the settlers and said, uh, please put up barbed wire. And the settlers said, no, you put up barbed wire to protect your, your you know, taro fields and uh, your crops. And Atai said, well, when my taro eat your cattle, we'll pay for the barbed wire. So there was this sort of jousting between the tribes. Anyway, Atai launched a rebellion. So in 1878, there was a massive revolt against French settlement. Um, Atai led guerrilla warriors against uh, the French uh, settlers, hundreds of people were killed and the French launched a military attack and uh, uh, massacred um, over 1,400 Kanaks. It was a, a symbol and today even you see uh, people in the Kanak nationalist movement wearing t-shirts with Chief Atai graffiti everywhere. Atai uh, Palika Mem Komba, you know, Atai to the Kanak Liberation Party, same struggle. Atai is a symbol of resistance to uh, colonisation. Similarly, in the First World War in 1917, as Canucks were being recruited to join the French army and go and fight in France, Chief Noel led a rebellion uh, once again against uh, French rule during the First World War. 
that was ended with um, his head being chopped off and sent to the Museum of Man in uh, in Paris. Um, and so there's a whole series of um, uh, resistance movements coming through the colonial period in the late 19th and early 20th century, and particularly about the theft of land, the loss of land, which is a source not only of economy for Melanesian people, for indigenous people all over the world, but also about identity, place, spirituality. And uh, that's been a central element of the Kanak struggle to reclaim land that was taken during that colonial period um, ever since. And also sending Kanaks and others overseas to many countries as slaves or near slaves. When I was in uh, New Caledonia last November, there was a ceremony where a Kanak who'd gone to fight in France during the First World War, his remains were brought home, disinterred from a cemetery, Calipo Wabete, and it was a, a very moving ceremony um, on uh, Remembrance Day, November the 11th. And it's a reminder that Pacific Islanders have travelled, you know, the, the, whether it's through early pre-colonial trade, whether it's through the experience of labour mobility or of war, people have moved across the Pacific to the Pacific Rim or beyond. And as you say, during the 1800s, there was a massive labour trade around the Pacific um, in Australia, people have heard the term Kanakas. You know, the, the term Kanak is actually originally a Polynesian term from uh, places like Hawaii and so on. It just means human being. Um, so people would call themselves Kanak to say, I am a human being. And it's a word that spread across the region. It was often used as an insult, you dirty Kanaka and so on. It was seen as uh, a second-class citizen. But for the indigenous people, it just meant, I am, I am a human being. And so in Australia... When uh, in the 1800s, uh, 1860s, the American Civil War was raging, uh, the cotton that had traditionally come from the south of the United States uh, was no longer going to the cotton mills of England and so on. And so people tried to establish a sugar industry, a cotton industry in northern New South Wales in Queensland. Robert Towns, um, who Townsville's named after, was uh, a, a planter at that time. Uh, many other people who became model citizens were in fact slave traders in those days. Uh, and they brought indentured labour to Australia from New Caledonia, particularly from Lifu in the Loyalty Islands, and especially from Solomon Islands and Vanuatu. Many people from Malaita, one of the biggest islands in Solomon Islands, and many parts of Vanuatu came to Australia to work particularly in the sugar industry in Queensland, but also in cotton in northern New South Wales uh, during the American Civil War period in the 1860s. And that industry uh, boomed on and sugar was a major crop. And those indentured labourers um, from across Melanesia, known as the Kanakas, then were exported, or should I say deported, when Australia became a federation in 1901, the first piece of legislation passed by the Australian Parliament was the Pacific Island Labourers Act, and that meant the deportation of thousands of Melanesian workers who'd come under indenture um, during the, uh, the late, uh, 1900s, uh, late 1800s, late 19th century. Many people stayed, however. They hid. They were intermarried with Aboriginal communities, Indigenous communities in, the, in Queensland, and their descendants today are known as the South Sea Islanders, the Australian South Sea Islanders, and there's a massive campaign to recognise the rights of the descendants of the Kanakas. That's a story maybe for another day, but uh, it's a struggle within Australia and shows the connections between Indigenous Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and those of neighbouring Melanesian countries like Vanuatu, Solomons and so on. And what happened to the people who were spent, sent to many other countries? Well, they've 
had, uh, you know, uh, cultural connections. Um, there's strong connections between uh, New Hebrides, today Vanuatu, and New Caledonia, um, both historically and, uh, and culturally. And I'll give you one example. Both uh, New Caledonia, New Hebrides were French colonies. New Caledonia under full French administration. Uh, New Hebrides under joint British and French the condominium, as it was known, or the pandemonium. They had two different sets of uh, colonial administration, which uh, added to the burden. There are some islands south of uh, both places, Matthew and Hunter Islands. And in colonial times, they were seen as part of the New Hebrides in all the maps, in all the charts, and so on. But when New Hebrides gained its independence in 1980 and became Vanuatu, the islands, the French claimed them and said these islands belong to us, not to Vanuatu. And that dispute continues today. Here we are, what, 38 years later, Vanuatu and France are in fact just recently been involved in negotiations to try and resolve this maritime boundary dispute. But the indigenous Kanak people recognise the islands as belonging to the custom chiefs of Vanuatu, of Tana, the southern province, uh, Tafea province of Vanuatu. I interviewed people after a ceremony in 2009 where the FLNKS, the Kanak Independence Movement of New Caledonia, signed an agreement saying, we don't believe these islands belong to us. In Melanesian culture, in Vanuatu culture, Kanak culture, these islands belong to the custom chiefs of the southern part of Vanuatu. Although the French state is claiming them as part of New Caledonia, we don't believe that's true because of custom. So even in contemporary times, the cultural links between people in New Caledonia and neighbouring islands, the intermarriages, the trade routes and so on that existed in pre-colonial times still have a resonance. And, you know, as I say, the governor of Vanuatu, the governor of France are involved in negotiations to this day because of the importance now of fisheries rights, of seabed minerals, deep water oil and gas, you know, having two lumps of rock is quite important, uh, you know, and you've got a bigger maritime zone, exclusive economic zone, than metropolitan France has got just with those two islands. I did read that the Canucks or the islanders are also sent to South America, California, Fiji, is that correct? There were indentured labourers sent all over, not just from New Caledonia, but from many parts for example, the, the island nation of Kiribati today, a Micronesian island spread across the equator, many people were taken from Kiribati to Peru to work in the guano mines and uh, most died there. Um, so there was a labour trade across the region. There was also labour brought into the region from uh, overseas. And so you had indentured labourers brought to Hawaii, uh, particularly from Japan and the Philippines, uh, to work in the pineapple plantations run by Dole. Uh, the Dole Company is the big uh, Hawaiian pineapple company, and they brought in indentured labourer from Asia. Similarly in Fiji, the British brought uh, Indians to work in the sugar industry. The traditional Fijians stayed in their villages, and they brought in indentured labourers to Giamitia between 1879 and 1916. The labour trade to Fiji was only ended by the First World War when the British couldn't spare the shipping, um, and the descendants of the Indians, uh, Indo-Fijians live today and we all know the history of Fiji has been the tensions between uh, different communities. Similarly, New Caledonia, um, the big change for New Caledonia was mining. Jules Garnier, uh, a French uh, geologist, discovered that the main mountain chain that runs along the, the centre of uh, New Caledonia's largest island, Grand Terre, 
was full of nickel. In fact, Garnerite, one of the types of nickel ore, is named after him. And uh, the first smelter was established very early uh, in uh, New Caledonia, but they needed labour to work in the mine, and so France brought in indentured labour from its uh, colonies overseas. In the early days from uh, Vietnam or Indochina, as it was Cochin China, um, the French uh, uh, colonies in uh, Indochina were, were brought also from uh, Java. And so once again today there are descendants of the indentured labourers from Vietnam, uh, from uh, Cambodia, from uh, Java, uh, as small communities still living now many generations in New Caledonia. So beyond the indigenous Kanak population, who through colonisation, disease, war, their population was whittled away, and today as a minority only makes up about 40% of the whole population. You had the descendants of the, the settlers who came and the convicts uh, going back to the 19th century, and uh, Europeans make up about a third of the population, people of European heritage. And then you have descendants from all the other French colonies, the Asian indentured labourers who came, and also people from Wallace and Futuna, a Polynesian territory administered by France, and they came during the nickel boom of the 1960s and 70s, just as Australia had a nickel boom at that time because nickel is very useful for armaments, and with the Vietnam War raging, the price of nickel skyrocketed, and in Australia, we had a nickel boom. Poseidon and others, uh, those are old enough to remember, there were, there were massive uh, uh, mining exploration in Australia as nickel, cobalt and other strategic metals useful for warfare um, were purchased by the United States and other powers. Similarly, New Caledonia's economy exploded in the late 60s, early 70s uh, because of uh, this massive nickel. New Caledonia today is estimated has got nearly a quarter of the world's reserves of nickel. It's an incredible strategic resource that would be a vital resource if the country was an independent uh, nation. And this time next week we'll have part two of the history lesson. It's a wonderful to be able to link all those countries together and have the knowledge that Nick McClellan has, journalist and researcher, for many years. And five past five. Are you doing the right thing? Marxism 18 is Australia's biggest radical left-wing conference, happening March 29th to April 1st in Melbourne. The conference will feature founding editor of Jacobin magazine, Bhaskar Sunkara, Australian writer Helen Razor, Palestinian activist Huwaida Araf, and films celebrating 50 years since the struggles of 1968. Join radicals and activists for political discussion in over 100 sessions across four days. Tickets start at $25 and are available at marxismconference.org. Red Flag Press is a 3CR supporter. On the program two weeks ago, we heard from Palestinian activist and broadcaster Yusuf Al-Rimawi. Speaking about 17-year-old Ahad Tamini, just the latest of hundreds of Palestinian children arrested and jailed for resisting the occupation of their homes. Robert Martin is another one of the presenters of the program, Palestine Remembered, here at 3CR at 9.30 on Saturday mornings. Late last year, Robert spent two months in Palestine and visited the Tamini family in their home who for generations have resisted the occupation. 
Her father, Bassem, was prevented at the last moment to come to Australia in April last year to talk about the Palestinian struggle. Robert interviewed Bassem and what follows is a slightly edited version of his interview. And at the end, Robert will talk about his time in Palestine. The issue is the occupation and the history. We are here, we, I told you a story about when we are here. I always, when somebody asks me this, I always said that my uncle was sitting under a mulberry tree in 1976. They succeed to stop the settler to take the land. And because of that, a journalist asked him, he was an old man, and he asked him, since when you are in the, you're on this land? He looked at him and said, I was sitting under this mulberry tree when Adam Bass from here and asked me if I see if passing or not. For that, as a Palestinian, we don't know when and uh, since when and why we must prove that we are here since long time. We are here. And also, a lot of people in all over the world, they want Palestinians to prove their right. Why, I don't know. What happened in 1976? Will you stop them taking more land? They came, a group from Goshemunim, terrorist group, settler, to take land from the Bisalih to make a settlement. In that year, they could stop them in, in, uh, to do that. For that, the journalists start coming and asking what's happening. Why nobody want, don't ask the Israeli to approve? When they took the land, they asked us if we have a permit or a license for our land. But nobody asks you in USA if you have a permit or not, because they want to legitimize their occupation for our land. They use the Turkish law, the Jordanian law, the Israeli law, and which law they can find any way to take the Palestinian land. And can you tell me about the march that you have every Friday and sort of when it began and how it began? Because I also understand it stopped for the last few weeks for reasons you can tell me. Because of the occupation and we want to raise our hands and uh, call our voice for every one of the world that we can't keep silent under occupation. And after the settlers start extending their fence, taking their land, attacking the people, we decided in December 9, 2009 to start a model of non-violent resistance to create a third Palestinian alternative because negotiation and armed resistance. We want to put for the Palestinian another option to be chosen and you follow because we feel that the negotiation will not need for anything. For that, we don't want to give Israeli a reason to all the time show uh, the Palestinian as a terrorist. After they make a link, we have the right to resist in any mean, but the mean is to serve the goal. For that, we want to create this model to convince our society by this way of resistance. We start December 9, 2009, to make a link with the first Intifada date. Since that date, we have a weekly demonstration, daily clashes with the army. We have two gates on the entrance of the village, which is one of it closed since 2001, and the other one closed and open for a lot of short period, long period. This is obviously the Israelis that close it. You have no choice. You don't get a choice. We haven't a choice. You see the, the first home of the village, it's around 100 meters from a gate. But when they close it, the owner of this house, he must go back and around the village from other road 
to go back to his home and he can't walk because they, they don't allow him to walk and they must go around other village to come to his home and it took him 20 kilometers just 100 meters to 20 kilometers we lost three people who killed by the Israeli army murdered by the Israeli army Mustafa Tamimi 2011 Rushdi, my brother-in-law and Nariman, my wife was filming and they killed him in front of her and she told him I am with Beit Salim I am with uh, I am journalist and she is filming and uh, they shoot a lot of live ammunition against her and she continued running until she arrived him he killed 22 of uh, November 2012 third one is Ubaid. he is from Salfit other village he killed during the hunger strike demonstration supporting for the hunger, the prisoner hunger, hunger strike. And they shot him by a sniper in his stomach and it's come in his heart and he died immediately. We have more than 350 injured persons, not all from Nabi Saleh, but most of them from Nabi Saleh, who had been uh, injured. Part of them has disability in part of their body. The worst one is Zihab Barghouti. He is full paralyzed by a rubber bullet in his head. A lot of people who had can't walk because they start using a sniper with 22 millimeters bullets. Point 22. Mm. They shoot the people. They start using this, this strategy. They shoot the people in their left leg in this part. And the, mostly of them, 70%, it charm the nerve of the foot. It's the sciatic nerve. It's make the, the paralyzed the foot. It's make a continuous problem for them. It's a strategy. They target them in this part. And most of them, it charm the nerve. Somebody broke the leg or it comes mm. on the... Can you, can you tell me quickly about the... I think it was 40% or 60% of the houses have demolition orders. There's 80% of the village. We have 13 demolition orders for houses which are located in Area C. One of it is my home. The old part, it's built 1964. I have a license from the Jordanian government. I have 200 square meter. They give me demolition order for 300 square meter. My home in area C. My nephew home, which my neighbor, there is uh, the, the line on the map comes on his roof and two rooms area B, two rooms area C. But they give him demolition order for all the house. This means 80% of the villages under demolition order. They demolished one of these houses last summer, and this means to keep us under stress. And we don't know when and, and how they will come and demolish the houses. It's a silent ethnic cleansing policy, because they don't force the people to leave directly. By this demolishing order, I can filter the floor for my home, on my home to my son. My four son will be directly replaced to area B or area A or outside. And this means they don't push him out. They just give a demolition order. It's indirect placement for the Palestinians. It's the main strategy for that. They want to push the people outside the land. Area C now, it's 62% of the West Bank. The West Bank, it's mean the, the promised state for the, the world talking about the two-state solution. It's under full control of the Israeli. We have just less than 250 thousand Palestinian and more than 600,000 settlers. They bring the settler and they push the Palestinian out. They push the Palestinian out by a lot of policy. Water control, 
I don't allow them, them to build in houses or live there. They push them by force. They demolition order. They destroy the, the, the agriculture. They control the spring, the, the everything. For that, they can't uh, let the shepherd to go with their sheep in any place. It's used for, by the farm and the owner for the land to irrigate some vegetables for their sheep, for their... Uh, They took water for a drink to make tea for, and when they are working there. But they don't allow anybody to, to get water there. And they come, they make a bowl and they declare it's a, a holy water. And every woman who burn her child must come and wash herself from this water. This loja, they use it to bring the people and make it a religious issue. And they became, and they start became naked around the bowl. And they know our culture. You can't get your daughter or your wife to, to work in the place. There is a naked people here. It's indirect also pushing the Palestinians out of their land. What can uh, international people like me do to help? I mean, as a Palestinian, it must be horribly frustrating that the world allows Israel to do what it wants, and yet you're demonized as terrorists. How does that make you feel as a, as a human being, as a father? All the time they want to, the victim to improve or to blame himself. Or they want to show, to stay they Part of the problem that we are became the victim of the victim after the international community solved the result of the Holocaust on our land and from our account. But we pay the price for Europe. Europe and the European people who don't like the Jewish. For that they push them out. And now, they don't want to feel sorry. For that, they need what the Israeli doing for the Palestinian, not to feel sorry and pity for what they are doing in the Holocaust. It's part of, uh, of stopping their conscience to blame themselves. For that, they need to see the victim as a criminal. For that, they need the Israeli to be a criminal against the Palestinian for something in their, in their mind, for their conscience, yeah. And part of it is a part of the problem. And also, you know, the Israeli, part of the problem that they, they make a link between the terrorist and the Palestinian. They may, you know, they control the media all over the world, CNN, Fox News, all of that. They show a Palestinian as a terrorist. But now by social media, we broke this monopoly of media. It's helping. It's a, a lot of helping. You know, it's bring the reality on the ground, on the table, in every home, to, 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 to come and pass to the, any information you want, if you search for the reality. Yeah. But what they can do, we, in Arabic we have a say, Ahlu Makkah adra bishaabha, that the resident of Makkah know its way well. You are as international. You can create your role and your responsibility and your duty. It's not a gift from you to, to be with the Palestinians. It's your duty and your responsibility. Nobody can be free if I lose my freedom. If we are human beings and we are really believe in the human rights. Israel is the guard for the interest of the capitalism, the military industry, mm. the colonization. For that, you suffer the same, we suffer the same enemy. You paid from your tax to Israel to be guard for the military industry in your country. For that, we have the same. 
when we and we we sit in Palestine, a stone of the head on the snake here, the same stone on the head of the snake, the snake there because it's the same snake. We believe we are partner, and I believe that the third intifada must be international intifada. I, I believe that if, if if peace comes by Jesus from Palestine, also peace for the world will come back from Palestine. You can start. Is I the symbol of all extreme terrorists and every bad thing in the world? For that, we need to focus on this problem. Sometimes uh, they want to push the, the conflict to, to show it as a religious conflict. They they anti-Semitize for the people who just talking about something, about occupation, about settler, about uh, killing the Palestinian. For me. It's not my responsibility and uh, to recognize between Judaism and colonization and Israel and occupation and uh, Zionist and occupation. It's the, the duty for the Jewish because as a Palestine is occupied, also the Judaism religion is occupied by these people and it, by the Zionism and it's used by in a bad way. They must struggle to talk back their religion. You've been listening to Bassem Tamimi, whose family has been resisting Israeli occupation for decades, and speaking with Robert Martin, one of the presenters of Palestine Remembered here on 3CR. I spoke with Robert last week and asked him first to explain how he came to be in the Tamimi family home late last year. So I've become very, very good friends with a gentleman by the name of Miko Pellet, who is also a famous author. He wrote The General Son, and I suggest that anybody that's interested in the Israel-Palestine so-called conflict that they read this book. Miko is great friends with Bassem Tamimi. Bassem Tamimi is one of the first Palestinians that Miko met. And Miko was an ex-soldier, IDF Special Forces. Sister's child got killed by a terrorist bombing, and so they became intrigued of what was really going on. And I remember reading a part in Miko's book how he was driving out to Nabi Saleh, petrified of these terrorists and horrible people that only want to kill Jews, and he fell in love with Bassem. And so he was able to set it up for me, and so I spent an entire day with Bassem, Tamimi, and his entire family. His wife and kids cooked us lunch and gave us a tour around Nabi Saleh. And Nabi Saleh is a very, very small place and inflicted by the occupation in a horrific way. There is an Arab spring, there was spring water not far from where you know the, the houses are. There's not many houses in the village. Over time, the Israeli occupation has stolen the natural spring waters. They had a march like, this was actually, I believe, the original village that started the Friday weekly marches in a protest, and it's non-violent. They know that they can't win with violence. Also, they don't want to win with violence. They want to teach their kids how to be kids and just be able to live on the land that their parents gave them and their parents gave them from there. And so they started with these non-violent uh, marches going down the street. Many of them have been killed. None of the soldiers are ever punished. They go to court, but they're either let off for whatever reasons. They have house arrest or you'll have uh, you know, the prime minister wanting to get the soldiers able to, to live, you know, just not held accountable. And so Impunity. This, impunity. Uh, that was the word I was looking for. Uh, and in fact, when I was with the Tamimis, it was two weeks prior to that, they had stopped the marches. And for a Palestinian village to stop marches is a huge thing. And the reason they had done this is that the Israeli forces had tried a new way of stopping them. And this is all on footage, so people can Google it and find out. 
the soldiers would kneel down and their snipers, aiming at unarmed civilians, tends to be the kids. Mainly the kids are the ones getting killed because the unsaid rule for an occupation is to just start terrorising from the grassroots and this is what they're doing. Some of Bassam's family members had been shot in the legs. He talks about that in that interview, doesn't he? He talks about it in the interview. Uh, and, and part of, I mean, these poor people, they cannot sleep at night. Kids need to feel safe in their own environment. It's a fact. Psychologists, everyone will tell you this is what we need. It's an innate thing that we need. But what Israel's doing to all of these Palestinian houses is the raid between 2 a.m. and 5 a.m. in the morning. Sometimes there's 20 soldiers, sometimes there's 50 soldiers. And the only reason they're doing this is to put fear into the entire population of the Palestinians, even whilst they're sleeping. And so they'll raid into these houses, they'll kick the doors down, and Bassam showed me all of the damage. Sometimes they'll take the entire, all the computers, all the phones, all the social media, they'll take whatever they like because they can. Now, there's no reason that you need to have 20 soldiers turn up at 2 or 3 in the morning, kick your kid's door in, handcuff them and blindfold them, which is all against international law. And this is what the Tamimi House has been going on for, for so long. And the biggest thing that upsets me about this is with um, Ahed being arrested for slapping, the question that should be asked is, why are the soldiers there? Two weeks before that, I'd shared a clip on uh, one of my social media pages and it showed four soldiers shooting M16 live ammunition in their driveway at their neighbours. Now, this is Palestinian territory. That's undisputed. This is Palestinian territory. But the Israelis want to make their life so terrible that they leave. And they're doing a pretty good job. Tell me about the actual houses where the people live. What have they got? It's a little village. They've lived there for centuries probably. So they've lived, it's been passed down for generations, generations, and generations, and that also is undisputed. I mean, no, nobody's saying that that's not the case. There's not many houses in this particular village. 80% of the village has house demolition orders upon it. 80%. This means that the IDF, the Israeli legal system, can come and demolish their houses. But they don't have a lot. They've got a TV, they've got couches, you know, they're pretty thick walls, but not a lot else. Uh, the one thing with the Palestinians that uh, you know, I notice the most is what they have is each other. Their biggest thing is they have each other and the land runs through their veins and that's one thing that you'll never be able to take away from them. They do live a simple life. They are wanting just to live. They want to educate and better themselves. And so they don't have all the fancy things. But unfortunately what they do have is one of the most powerful armies trying to get rid of them, using all of their, uh, all of their weapons... I also see a lot of the raids in the villages as the soldiers training because that's what they want to do in case there is a war. They teach all of their soldiers, this is how we'll raid a house. Watch how we can intimidate these kids. Watch how we can take all of their computers. Let's make these kids cry. Let's beat dad up in front of daughter and wait for the pressure cooker to explode. My first trip, I stayed in Berlin and I went down there and I thought, you know, I'm going to buy things for all the kids. And I went to the shops with, with Hamdi Rama. And I took all these presents back because, you know, my kids love presents. Took all these presents back to all of these kids. Didn't play with any of them. Took the wrappings, played with the wrappings, kicked them around because that's just what they're like. They don't need all the flash things. They're just not raised that way, which is really cool to see. What happens to the land that surrounds the houses? Have they got any land left for their trees, their animals? So, no, there's not, there's not a lot. From Bassam Tamimi's house, you can see down the hill, you can see a difference between the olive trees. Down the bottom of where Bassam Tamimi lives, three or 400 metres away, you can see a lot of his trees are being cut and destroyed. On the other side of the road where they're allowed to use the natural springs, being the Israelis, they have big trees, they have a lot of greenery. It's a different world. 
one town is like going back in time and the other one is like going forward in time. They're slowly encroaching on that land and that's part of what they want to do. And you have the, the soldiers there, there to protect, so-called protect the, the settlers from the, the dreadful Palestinians. That's all they're there for. That's all they're for. I mean, if I, if I digress to Hebron, Hebron is a known fact where that the settlers are in charge of the soldiers. And the same thing happens here. The settlers can walk up to the Palestinian villages and do whatever they like. They will be protected. But if a Palestinian tries to cross over, they'll be shot. And so there's a vast difference. Absolutely, they are there to protect the Israelis who are illegal occupiers or colonisers. Can you talk a bit more about the man that Bassem talked about, that the gate was 100 metres away from the gate, but because they've locked the gate, he had to go the long way round, and it was 20 kilometres? Uh, well, so in different, different areas, what happens is they've put a wall, the apartheid wall goes through a lot of areas. We might be on this side of Smith Street, all of a sudden we're, we're blocked off. And so people who you know, know 3CR, Smith Street's a pretty vibrant street. If we block off one area and put 20 kilometres either way, the only way I can get there is maybe to go via Doncaster or maybe to go via Northcote. And that's the only way I can go. Now, the apartheid wall isn't all the way through there, but these villages are cut off. And so the smaller villages as well have areas where they have been closed in with gates and they also use concrete blocks, huge ones, to stop people going in and out. Uh, and some villages have been locked up for two years. Well, they can't drive in or out. And this is something that happens every single day. But one of his friends, yeah, used to be able to walk through, go and see his cousins. No problem today. You can't do that. Now, one of his houses, one of Bassam's houses, his cousins, and he talks about this in here, is in between uh, Area B and C. Now, Area C, they can't do anything. The Palestinians can't do anything. They're not allowed to. And the other half is in Area B. Now, Area B is there ready to be demolished. So who made the, the dividing line? How did that come in? Well, Israel chooses what they want and they mm. take. Mm. Uh, you know, these are the questions that should be asked, not mm. the fact that why are the Palestinians fighting back? I mean, I put to any Australian, any human, anyone in the world, that if a burglar comes into your house, kicks you out to the backyard, we're not asked to negotiate with that burglar and say how much we're going to have back. It's not going to happen. But this is what's happening in Palestine. And this is the Oslo Accord, isn't it? Oslo Accords are agreements where the uh, Israelis weren't going to start building, you know, stop building settlements, and they all tripled. Basically, it was a way they also gave the PA some power. The PA, depending on who you talk to, enables Israel to do what they like. I think the Oslo Accords have been perfect for Israel. Palestinians, yet again, have been abused, victimised or neglected by world powers and continue to do so. I mean, the fact that the Americans you know, have just given Jerusalem as the eternal capital of Israel. I mean, it's just bollocks. Tell us about some of the other villages or towns that you went to and the people you visited. So part of what I like to do is just go and hang with people because that's the way you get to see what's really going on. Is there and any restrictions on what, where you can go, where you can't go? I can go wherever I like because I'm white, unless I'm wearing a kefir and I'm walking through Jerusalem because I was actually detained a few times and I've got footage of me being detained. I think after a while I got to know that I was there for troubling them, <laughs> being the Israelis, because I was reporting the truth. And when I was wearing a kefir, I got held up on numerous times, asking what it was about. And even in Hebron, I actually had my Free Palestine T-shirt stolen from me. And after a little bit of negotiating with Isa Amro, who was a Palestinian, we have on footage them actually giving my shirt back. But that's as far as it goes. You might be detained at a, a crossing. Don't do anything else. No, no, because, no. They're not going to. 
Well, no, they're not, unless you're Palestinian. So, I mean, it's a very, very safe place for non-Palestinians to walk through. Unfortunately, on my way out of Palestine, I was detained by the security because they had heard about me and there's a mark against my passport. And they said the next time that you, you try and come back here, you have to apply from back home. And then off the record, they said, you'll never be coming back here again. They shouldn't be able to tell me that I can't visit Palestine. It really saddens me that I can't go back. I was simply doing reports, speaking to Palestinians, having their voices out, and this is what happened. But I had the right to walk around anywhere I wanted to go. Talk about some of those people that you did interview. Basson, to me, fantastic guy. He's a guy that could be your uncle. Gentle guy. He's not an extrovert. He's just gentle, just you know, wanting to do things right. I met another guy called Yunus Ara. He's a little bit wild in front of the screen because you know he's been doing it for a long time in a in, a, in an area where has, has uh, where he lives near Hebron. His town was blocked off for two years. Getting into his home, gentle guy, lots of kids, lovely wife, cooked me dinner. We all ate out of the same plate. Beautiful people. But as he walked through and he pointed to different areas, different people, all the stories come out. There's not a Palestinian that hasn't been touched by the occupation. Walking in a uh, Indahisha refugee camp, I walked in on my own and I had a few people recognise me and they said, you know, we love what you're doing, do you want to talk to us? And so I sat in a cigarette shop and met dozens of Palestinians. Some walked in with crutches, some had, had bullet holes in their legs, some had lost their parents, and only a few weeks before this, a young Palestinian who was 16 years old was part of a youth movement trying to set up mobile libraries. He was shot in the head during a raid only a few months before I got there and you could feel the tension and the emotion of, of what happened because it happens continually. So these people, will, you know, they'll draw the murals of the martyrs on the, on the walls. They've got so good at it because they have to keep doing it and they have to keep replacing them, which is just horrific. The other thing that got me is that all of my friends that I met, because they're all beautiful people, couldn't come to Jerusalem with me. You know, I often forgot that. I said, you know, let's go to Jerusalem, we'll hang out and we'll do this, that and the other. And I said, you know, Robert, I can't go. Only way I can go is to get a special permit. And sometimes if I do get a special permit, they can actually say no when I'm there. And so these people that it's, and it's not far. Palestine's not a big place. So Hebron to Jerusalem, it's a two hour drive. You can get there, but they can't. And to go there, there's a lot of open land, but there are outposts everywhere. You can see barbed wire everywhere. You Explain can what an outpost is. Different kinds of outposts, but some of the outposts are where you'll have some Israeli settlers decide they actually want to move into an area, and they'll go move into an area. Now, it's against Israeli law, but what will happen is that the Israeli government will hook them up with some power, and they can sit there for a certain amount of time, and then these can they evolve into larger areas. Other outposts you'll have is where they'll have a mobile one where you'll have tanks, armoured vehicles, soldiers everywhere because they want to block a town. Today, this is what we're going to do. They may have permits, they may not need a permit to go between areas, but they'll decide that they're not allowed to go. Part of divide, conquer, annoy, dehumanise. And it's rampant all the way through. How many refugee camps are there in the West Bank? Have you got any idea? I, I don't know how many there are. There's a few. I visited three of them, and none of them are big. And the refugee camps are the areas that get hammered by the soldiers. They're very, very small areas. They'll tear gas them. They'll shoot tear gas towards the kids coming home from school, and I witnessed this. Colonising 101 is to just ruin the kids' innocence. Not only do they steal land, they're stealing the innocence, and then after they steal the innocence, they'll take the life. Is this from 1948 or 1967? 1948. 
the ones that I visited. As I start thinking, it's such a beautiful place with such horrific actions, the kids smiling, and then you hear the stories that they've been through. You know, you speak to the fathers who a son has been in jail for, for five years, for ten years. You have people that uh, went to school and have never come back. And these poor people are labelled terrorists. Did you speak to people who have lost their homes due to the demolition? So the last time I was there, I witnessed it. So I actually witnessed houses getting demolished just in East Jerusalem because part of East Jerusalem is part of what Israel want to take over, and I witnessed families. I spoke to families after them. They're in shock because they have a lot of kids. I asked where they were going to go and live. How much notice do they give them? Sometimes there's noticed floating for a long time, like Basim Tamimi and Nabi Saleh, a lot of them have demolition orders and they've had for a number of years. They can come tomorrow and do all of them. Some of them, they won't give a lot of notice. Now, if you have a Palestinian that does the wrong thing, Israeli law enables them to go and demolish that person's house, plus a cousin's house as well. And so nobody is safe. And there's also parts of uh, very, very close to Jerusalem where they're wanting to expand, and a lot of those houses have demolition orders and I spoke to some of the families and they have no idea when it's going to happen now not long ago all the powers got turned off so this is the beginning fine maybe we won't demolish your house today but what we will do we're going to turn your power off and slowly make it unbearable but where do these people go will Australia take them no they can't go anywhere we're not allowed out are they no it's war crimes and we allow it to happen Basin Tamimi was supposed to come to Australia last year to talk about Life and you know what we can do as a you know for his non-violent activism. They didn't let him in, but they let Benjamin Netanyahu in. Open arms, you know, red carpets, just wrong. And so I suppose that we do share values. You know, the colonisation, the abuse, all of that stuff we do share absolutely unequivocally. I personally don't, but I also believe that the government doesn't represent the majority of the people that actually want Palestine to be liberated. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. My name is Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with Robert Martin, one of the co-presenters of Palestine Remembered, the Palestine program here at 3CR, about his recent visit to Palestine. I'd imagine one of the hardest jobs for people in Palestine would be school teachers trying to look after the children who are traumatised by what's happening at home. Did you manage to go into any schools at all? I didn't go to any schools, but I went very close to a school, and I spent time with a school teacher in his house in Hebron. He goes to school. He has a permit to walk to school, and this is from where you're sitting, you and I, to the McDonald's. 500 metres, maybe, for people listening. He can walk there at 8.30 in the morning. He can come home at 5 o'clock depending on what time the school finishes. That's the only time he's actually allowed to go there. Some days, the soldiers won't let him go. Sorry, today, you can't go. And so when I sat with him, lovely Palestinian guy, young guy, born and raised there, we spoke about post-traumatic stress syndrome. They all have it. They all have it because they don't know what's going to happen. And if you walk around an area like Hebron, there's 230,000 Palestinians. There's about eight, four to 800 illegal settlers and over 2,000 soldiers protecting them. These settlers can walk through these areas. They can throw stones at the Palestinian kids, and do. They walk around with M16s. I saw them jogging with their sneakers and their shorts, an M16. They've also got Uzis. Now, an Uzi is like an M16, but it's a smaller version. So they run through all of these different areas to intimidate the Palestinians. 
And the kids, I met some of the, spoke to some of the kids, and they openly speak about being afraid because they know that they cannot actually do anything. They also know that the Israelis hate them. They don't have to be told that. They can see that. Hebron is an area where you see what's going on in all of Palestine in a very small area, but it's an area which is continually gets cut, cut up. They'll have flying checkpoints. They'll pull over people who you know, are speaking Arabic. What are you doing here? Who said you could be here? Well, you've seen me here the last, you know, normally on a 28-day rotation, the soldiers. You saw me yesterday. You know who I am. Show me your idea. What's in your back? Drop your pants. Turn around. It's a game. I know what it's like being a kid. You're in a group. Got a, you know, you've got half a dozen of your mates that are 18, 19, 20. You're as an Israeli raised to either fear the Palestinians or hate them. A lot of the Israelis are told that the Palestinians are occupying their land. Now they're giving a gun, an absolute authority to treat these Palestinians in any way they can. It's a gang mentality. Palestinians can't do anything. And I saw this happen with the soldiers, and I filmed it on numerous occasions. It's sad that these kids, kids as young as 10, 11 and 12, are having their bags searched. Why? Horrible. How do they get to school in situations like that? Do they have to have... Parents or others escorting the kids? In Hebron, where I saw it happening, they do. And there's also groups. You'll have some Christian groups. You'll have ex-soldiers go over there, and they have these groups where they can walk the kids, which is a really, really good thing because I not only does it protect them, but I believe the kids can also see that it's not just Palestinians protecting them. Maybe the world is listening. And so quite often they will have people walking with them. Quite often they don't. And it was not long ago, I think two or three weeks ago, a school in Hebron was raided during the day. Why not? When I say a school, it's a school where the kids aren't old. They're probably under 10, more more like a kindergarten preschool. And the soldiers decided to go and raid. But they don't just raid, tear gas. They'll separate the kids. They'll do all of these sorts of things, as again, as I keep saying, just to brutalise them. I mean, how could you sleep at night? My child hears something, you know, in the night and is scared. You know, she thinks of something that's scared, you know, a ghost. She'll be scared for, for weeks. But... These kids are always exposed to it. And, you know, as I said, I saw some of these raids. It's horrific, horrific. And the fact that these kids can do it shows what sort of houses they've been raised in because the education system teaches to fear and also teaches that this is our land. There's no such thing as the West Bank. It's Judea and Samira. God gave us this land. It's ours. These Arabs shouldn't be here. If we don't stop these Arabs, they'll kill us. And you can imagine the, the impact of that on the, the mothers and the fathers to watch their kids being treated like that and know that if they intervene, they'll get worse. And that's a known fact. And so, you know, when I did some interviews, the Palestinians liked what I was doing because I could do more. I could actually get in the faces of the soldiers and ask them questions. I could actually get in the middle. But if a soldier is touched by a Palestinian with a little thing on the shoulder, that is enough. If you swear at a soldier, that is enough. If you do nothing to a soldier, they'll miraculously find 20 witnesses and say, this is what he did, and they'll win. And what happened when you intervened? You? Well, they don't know what to do, and they actually don't know what to do. I, uh, I had a few of them take my camera off me, but I would always say, I have cameras behind me, and I have cameras on the side. And I would push towards something, whether it be a window or something like that, just to say, I don't trust you. I want you to actually do something, so I've got it on footage. 
Unfortunately, the world doesn't care when you do it to a Palestinian, but if you do it to me, you'll become famous. And I mean, a few of them, I got really upset. I was in Hebron. I had just witnessed a tour from Issa Amro, who is an internationally renowned activist now. He met Bernie Sanders not long ago. He's all about nonviolence. He gave me a tour in an area in Hebron where he cannot cross the road. And I said, you're serious? He said, yeah, there's an imaginary line. can't cross the road. So we did. We went across the road. No, can't come. There was a, a kid, maybe under 10, was speaking in Hebrew to Isa. And I found out later what the kid was saying was that one day I'm going to murder you in your house. After that, he high-fived the soldiers. Breeding hate? I mean, any human being should have told that kid not to do that. Well, after that, I was walking through down towards the Ibrahim Mosque and I asked a few tourists or Jewish people there what they thought that Palestinians couldn't walk across this invisible line. And I was told that it's our land. God gave it to us. If the Palestinians could walk here, they would kill us. Well, the last mass murder there at the Ibrahim Mosque was done by an American Jew who killed 29 Palestinians whilst they were praying. And there's a plaque was put up. But again, it's the Palestinians at fault. And I mean that, that day I almost lost my ability to cope because the blatant one side demonising the Palestinians just after I'd heard these stories and witnessed how Isa couldn't walk in certain areas. It's horrible, horrible. And how does he cope with that? I don't know how they cope. I don't know. I mean, they're the most humorous, family-orientated people I've ever met. Uh, and I think they deal with humour. But, you know, I suppose when you're dealing with a crisis, you cope. It's when a crisis ends. So but every day's a crisis. So maybe late at night they're, they're thinking. Maybe they think about suicide. Who knows what they think about? I know that I couldn't cope. I couldn't cope if someone had belittled my daughter in front of me and I wasn't able to do something. I would not be able to cope if I came home to my house and I had strangers living in it and I had to live in the gutter. I don't know how I would cope. I don't know how I would cope if one of my, if I had a son, was put in jail for no reason. I don't know how I'd cope. I don't know how I would cope if I had strangers into my house. Every country in the world spends so much money on trying to get rid of bullying. Bullying's not good. Can't do bullying. It causes PTSD, you know, issues as you're growing up. Well, in Israel, it's state-sponsored, state-educated all throughout to demonise the Palestinians. And if your child does go to prison, what's your rights to see them? None. So quite often what they'll do is if, if I'm in the West Bank, they'll take the child two or three in the morning, they'll take them into an area where the Palestinians can't go. No visitation. And then when they go in the, in the back rooms, they have to speak Hebrew. The Israeli soldiers say, you know, look, just admit that you've, uh, you, know, you did something. Or tell us someone that you know is doing something wrong and sign here. They drive them around sometimes all night to disorientate them. I spoke to some people who were children of the Stones and they were kids that were 16 during the First Intifada. Some of the stories they told me about how they were tortured, left in the sun without being able to move, kicked around whilst they were blindfolded, physically abused, anally abused, spat on, assaulted in every way possible. Nothing's happened since. They have had no recourse. And a lot of them aren't well now because of this. It's horrible. I mean, it's, and you're surrounded by it. Just nasty stuff. Was there any happy days? 
I had a lot of happy days. And, you know, when I, when I sit back and I think about it today, you know, the meals, the happiness, smoking the shisha, the laughs. I love their accent too. You know, I mean, English is their best second language, but it's brilliant. Just lovely people. I went to Jordan on my way home. Nothing against the Jordanians, but they're nothing like the Palestinians. And maybe it's because they're an oppressed people. They are so welcoming. I have never been so welcomed in any era in my life. Now, I didn't always wear a kefir. I could have been a Jew. I didn't have a sign saying I'm pro-Palestinian all the time. But if you're a stranger, they will say, come in. What are you doing here? What can I do to help? Do you need anything? And sometimes where I did get in altercations, they were always worried about me, not about themselves, but they are beautiful people. I recommend people go because it's a safe place for non-Palestinians. If you go and immerse yourself in the culture, you'll have a wonderful time. Get touched by the Palestinian vibe, the love, and come back and tell people what you've seen because it is an area where people should go and visit because they are beautiful people. The culture is fantastic. The kids are magnificent. The wives are happy when you're talking about happy things. How are you going to cope with not being able to go back? Devastated. Devastated. Did you think that could have happened? I was surprised it didn't happen the first time. And then I was was telling myself the world is a very, very big place. I'm only a very minuscule part of this. I may have a presence on social media, but that doesn't mean I have a presence anywhere else. Whilst I was there, there was a few pages set up, one to have me killed, which I reported, and Facebook got back to me saying doesn't go against our rules and regulations. There was another one where one of their members of parliament who's in charge of people getting into the country was getting I said, hashtag saying get me out. So I thought maybe something would happen. And I did have some threats whilst I was there, uh, people coming up and saying, I know who you are, you know, why don't you put your cameras away and we'll, I'll kill you and all this. So be it. But I'm upset that I can't go back. I was expecting it. Did you get into Israel? I didn't want to go. I was told I should go to Tel Aviv, I should go to those areas. I did not want to go. People told me that Tel Aviv is different. My way I see that is that all the people in Tel Aviv have served in the IDF. They cannot be different. They go over there and they forget about what they've done to an indigenous population. They put a uniform and come back in the West Bank and an M16 and abuse people. I would have lost my shit if I'd gone there. Because when I did speak to some Jewish people, the Israeli Jews, I would often say, what do you think of the Palestinians? You know what the response was? Palestinians. Never heard of Palestinians. What are Palestinians? And then you would push it. Well, Palestinians, you know, they shouldn't be here. You know, they're Jordanians. Palestinians, you know, they're taught to hate all they want to do is kill us. And I would always end my conversation with, how many have you spoken to? Why would I talk to one of them? They're dirty terrorists. And I have this on footage. have it on footage. And the amount of times that I got that was incredible. How many Palestinians have you spoken to? None. Well, the majority of the Israelis, the only time they witness a Palestinian is when they're raiding their houses. They've got their uniforms on and they're terrorising Palestinians. How do you think they're actually going to look at you? I travelled through Hebron, Jerusalem, Betzahur, Bethlehem, with a number of Jewish people. They were welcomed. They had a wonderful time. They didn't have a sign to say that we're pro-Palestinian. Well, they're still alive. So the myth that we have to have all of these soldiers everywhere is because the Jews will get killed, it's a fallacy. But colonisers have to label their, I suppose, all the indigenous population as terrorists, used to be savages, in order to relieve them of their guilt and to justify their actions. Nothing's changed. They're just doing it in a more horrific way with sophisticated weapons.
it's probably it's not as horrific. It's just more sophisticated. And they've got all the weapons. They've got all the weapons. Got everything they want. Everything. Palestinians don't have them. Where do you get them? Last time I was there, I visited a family who had lost their daughter, and it was in an area. And I remember talking to these soldiers because they harassed me because we had a big banner. And I asked the soldiers, you know, they said, oh, we're here to protect Israel. I said, well, well, their daughter, who was six, died. Would have been nice if you could have protected them. The fact that you're protecting Israel, does that mean you have to walk up and down here, humiliating the family? I said, how come you got all these weapons? They said, oh, you know, we have to protect ourselves. And I asked them, I said, have you ever seen a Palestinian with a gun? No. They actually took a while, but they said no. I said, well, how are you protecting? Shouldn't they be the ones that need protection? I mean, these kids, they're M16s. I don't know how many people have seen an M16, but they have stun grenades, they have gas cylinders, they have everything on them. And the Palestinians are civilians. They are civilians, absolute civilians. They're farmers, a lot of them, just want to live. But just reverse that, and you've got the Palestinians in military courts and you've got the Israelis in a civil court. I mean, I mean, it's total two systems for two different people, which is apartheid. Palestinian kids have to go to a militarised court. They're allowed to be held 28 days, 28 days, 28 days, don't have to give you a reason. They don't. And then quite often, miraculously, they'll have witnesses that said you did this. And then you find out later that that witness wasn't even in the country at the time. But that doesn't matter. It's done. I would love people to Google how many Israeli soldiers have spent a lot of time incarcerated for crimes committed against the Palestinians. You won't find many. And the rule, as a parent, if you don't punish your children, they'll keep doing it. But one step further, not only do they not get punished, some of them get made heroes. Now, the guy last year that killed a Palestinian in Hebron, as he was lying maimed, incapacitated, became the poster boy of the largest supermarket. So you go to Coles, my Aldi's, you get your bag, and had a picture of this soldier with a gun who killed a Palestinian that was incapacitated 100 metres away, 50 metres away. I didn't show you that bit. In their head. This is what happens. I interviewed the man who recorded that murder. Spent time with him in his house, and I've got it on my Facebook page and my YouTube channel, because he has death threats every day. Soldiers come in and say, we're going to kill you. He had three or four kids. One of the kids, a little bit older than my daughter, who I I spent some time with, lovely girl. But when she starts telling me how she's too scared to look out the window sometimes, when she tells me that they thought it was raining one night because water was coming through and it was soldiers urinating in the top of their roof, when they come home someday and they tell the kids that they're going to kill their dad, he reports this and he gets told, if you keep complaining... We'll put you in jail. Please. I wouldn't be able to cope under those circumstances, and I would say that any Western country man could not put up with that. We would do something. The Palestinians are more patient and forgiving than anyone or any people on the planet. It's been going on a long time. Not only are they dehumanised, abused and had their land stolen, the world calls them terrorists and blames them for the issues. They're paying the price of the Holocaust they had nothing to do with. During the Holocaust, they welcomed the Jewish people in there. Look what's happened. How would you take it? I mean, this is the bit that I really cannot comprehend 
This is the bit that really upsets me when you see people like Malcolm Turnbull, Sucker, all of these people saying that we must always be on the side of Israel. We have such a uniformity of our morals. We do not. And all of these pro-Israeli people, have they been to Palestine and seen what's going on? Have they seen what their beloved Israel is doing to the indigenous population? These religious people that say it's God's, God has given Israel to its people. Have they seen what's happening to the people? Why don't they put themselves in that shoe? Think if it was them. Any religion that says you are better than another people, that's not a religion. That is a sick ideology. But we accept it. We accept that Israel has its right to defend itself. It's occupying another people's land. You cannot say that you're defending yourself. It's truly horrific. Truly horrific. You've been listening to Robert Martin talking about his recent visit to Palestine. And unfortunately, his last visit to Palestine because he dared to tell the truth. But you can hear more from Robert, Yusuf and Nasser on Saturday morning, 9.30 on Palestine Remembered. That's all for me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock, but stay tuned in a few minutes for Dunbar Law. Bye for now.